Hey, we've been looking at Matthew 19. We've been working through Matthew. And uh, the last couple of weeks, we, uh, the last couple of times we were talking about marriage, specifically, uh, Jesus was given instruction on marriage at a, at a kind of response to a Pharisee's question about divorce. And it's, it's very fitting that he would follow that discussion on marriage with a passage about children. Because children are one of the primary purposes in God's design for marriage, right? Reproducing the faith community. And so he, he gives this passage on children, and then he goes into, uh, Matthew does this a story about the rich young ruler who came up to Jesus. And at first, you may see those two things, and you go, how do they go together? Well, um, they, they actually fit together quite well, the way he, he winds it up, and it's really a great way for us to end up this semester and end up this time. It's a, it's a very important message. It really deals with the issue of what is saving faith. What is saving faith? And that's what I think he deals with in this, in this passage today, starting in verse 13, going all the way through verse 30. I think he lays out for us the character of saving faith, what that looks like the character that should be in the people that are actually uh, coming for saving faith the conviction of saving faith how how their response to christ is worked out in their life the confirmation the actually the way it practically is worked out in their life and then the crown or reward of saving faith so the character of saving faith the conviction of saving faith the confirmation of saving faith and the crown or reward of saving faith. And my wife goes, you like making those letters. Well, I said, you can blame a guy named Stephen Olfer for that. He was this old Plymouth Brethren pastor in Memphis who was one of my mentors. And he could sneeze and it would come out alliterated, man. He just, that's the way he, he was. And it's, it's a memory tool for helping you remember these things. But, um, when we look at this passage, he starts off. Um, let me let me just take you to Russia for a second. When I used to go, I used to take groups over to Russia. When I left the FBI, I I probably led somewhere between thirty and forty trips of people, a lot like yourselves. Like we went on in the summer to the Philippines over to Russia, and we would go knock on doors, and we would go in there and say, hey. I'm from America. I want to tell you about Jesus. And they'd say, well, come in. And they would treat us to some bread and some tea. And, and we would sit and talk and share the gospel with them and go through a track, a little booklet about Jesus with them. A lot of them would pray to receive Christ. And I remember going to this one lady's house, or a little flat, her apartment. And we, we came back a few days later. And she had prayed to receive Christ with us. And we said, hey, we're just here. We want to follow up with you. Um, you know, the other day we were here and we came and we shared and you prayed to receive Christ and that was great. And so if you were to die right now and, and stand before God and, he, and He'd say, uh, Olya, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And Olya said, well, 
I've tried to be a pretty good person and I would hope that he would look at my life and say that the good outweighs the bad. And I'm like, wow. We just spent two hours the other day going through it and she said she understood it. And we left all celebrating, high-fiving, and we come back and she doesn't have a clue what we really said the other day. It didn't really sink in. And that happens all over this country. People raise their hand. They get baptized. They get sprinkled. They say things about what they really want to do with their life with Christ, but the heart is never there. It's merely just going through the motions. And to me, that's sad because a lot of those people, maybe most of them, are going to end up hearing what Matthew proclaimed in Matthew 7. When he, and he says, many were going to say, Lord, Lord, I did this. I went to church. I gave money. I did all these things. He's going to say, depart, because I never knew you. It, never, it, never, it doesn't make a difference in their life. There's really no change, no turning, no repentance. And, and we, we make repentance a bad word. It's not a work. Let me say that again. Repentance is not a work. It's, a very, it's, a, it's as much a gift of God as faith is. So by His grace that repentance comes. And so in this passage, I think He brings it out and makes it clear that you can't just simply profess you want to follow Jesus. That's not what it's about. It's more than that. And uh, I think he starts with this character of saving faith in this first passage, this first little section dealing with kids. Let me read it in Matthew 19. We're going to read through and come back and look at each one of these, the character, the conviction, the confirmation, and even the crown. But starting in verse 13, Matthew says, Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and, he, and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbors yourself. The young man said to him, all these I've kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will the rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. 
Then Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and we followed you. What then will we have? You got to love Peter, man. I mean, we've done it, God. What do we get? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for My name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. children being brought to him. Picture this, Jesus. If you've ever been to a third world country where they do this, like India, like in India, when we, and Brad, I'm not sure if they did it in your church, but every time I go, when I preach or speak, they will come up and they will go like this. They want you to put your hand on them and to bless them. It's very, very common in a lot of countries. It was also common during this time period to go to a rabbi and have him bless you and say a blessing on you that you would be good in the law, that you would be good in marriage, and that you would be good in good works. Those were the three things they wanted you to be blessed in. And they believed that the prayers of a righteous man would avail much, that they, if somebody prayed over them that really was connected with God, it had more bearing in their minds. We do the same thing. People would go up to Billy Graham all the time. I remember a funny story Leighton told when Billy was in this one place. He was, this lady had come up there to visit him, and uh, Leighton was in the room. Leighton was Billy Graham's brother-in-law. And, you know, Billy was older, and... Um, so he just he didn't get out as much. So a lot of times these people that would go up there to visit, they'd just get a chance to come see him. And they were so excited. They're meeting Billy Graham. And this lady goes, um, would you pray for me, Mr. Graham? And he goes, why, sure. I'd be happy to. And he goes, what, what do you want me to pray for? Oh, I don't know. Just anything. <laughs> so Leighton said, Billy in his southern style just said, Lord, I don't know what this lady needs, but you do. So I just pray for her. Amen. <laughs> he just, that's all he did. But she felt like his prayers carried some kind of weight, right? Just because he loved the Lord and he was connected to the Lord and he lived this life. And they did too. And so what's happening is <clears throat> these people are coming up, bringing their kids. And the word there here is paideia, but in, in Luke, it's brephos in the same account. And brephos means infant, like a, a, a child who's still nursing. So they're bringing little kids to him. And the disciples go, uh-uh. We're too busy. We, we are going here. And Jesus puts a stop to that real quick. And he says, let them come. Don't hinder them. In fact, he uses it an object lesson and said, you've got to be like this little kid. What does that mean? Well, I think it's the character of saving faith. We've got to be like a child. What's, a, what's an infant? I want you to think the other night I was holding my precious grandchild Noah. And I was just looking at him. And there was something about when we made eye contact, now he'll break out into a little bit of a smile. And it's so cool to connect those eyes together and to know this is my son's 
son. And, and, I, and I would pray over him and, and look at him, but he's just, when you look at a baby like that, who's still nursing, what do you see? Tell me some characteristics of babies like that in context of mm. our culture. Total dependence. Total dependence. Yeah. Innocence. Innocence. Like, and, and innocence, we don't mean innocence from sin, but just not even, they're just kind of, there's no presumption on their part. They're just real and they're just, you know, present. huh? They're just present. They're just present. Yeah. And, and, and so what else? They're humble. They don't, they don't have any pride about anything. They don't have anything to be proud about. Trusting. Yeah, they're trusting. But that's the character of saving faith. These parents wanted their kids to be around Jesus. I think back to when Rachel, my daughter, uh, almost died a couple of years ago before her heart transplant. She wanted us to baptize. Daryl, you were at the baptism service out at, uh, at the Cabana Club. We put her in the pool and I baptized her. And that night she went home and she wrote a letter to me. In fact, I still got it. I carry it around in my backpack. Not the letter, but I went. I made a copy of it because it reminds me. And it says, I miss you guys already, but I'm happy to be in heaven. I went to Jesus at blank when I wrote this, March 25th, Rachel. Ten years old. From the time we brought Rachel home, we built into her. We brought her to Jesus. And, and any parent who loves God wants their kids to come to God. And the disciples were going, no. And one of the things I see in this is God doesn't limit who comes to Him by people. He limits sometimes because He'll put a barrier up, but he, the people that follow Him should not be the one limiting who comes to God. Think about that for a second. The disciples were going, no, you can't do this. And Jesus said, let them come. He's God. They don't make that choice. He makes that choice. But the character of saving faith seen in these little kids is humble, authentic, Simple, honest, that's the character of saving faith. It's, that's the character of the person that's really ready for God to do a work in their life. Not somebody who's proud. Not somebody who is, who is putting up a front. They're just trying to do it because it, they think it's the right thing to do. Well, after that, it says, and behold. And that in our vernacular would be like, Tom, you're not going to believe this. That's the same. When it says behold, we read behold and we don't talk like that. Behold! Brad's here. Run. <laughs> Run. It's like, you're not going to believe this. A man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? A guy, I mean, this is, this is a dream. I mean, this guy's coming up saying, I want to know how to get into the club. I want to know how to be part of the family. And you'd think it was awesome. But there's a difference. With the children, you have insignificant. Here, you've got an influential guy. With the children... They don't know what to do. They just are brought. 
with the guy, he's going, hey, what do I have to do? Which shows that he doesn't recognize it's already been done for him. He was thinking he could do something. See, his biggest problem was he didn't recognize his need. And Jesus surfaced that pretty clearly here. And he said, what do you ask me about what is good? And then he tells him the commandments. And I find it interesting that most of the time in the New Testament, when it lists the commandments, have you ever noticed that it never puts love the Lord your God with all your heart? Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Don't worship other gods. Have you ever noticed that in the New Testament? You don't see those, but you see the last six murder. You see murder. You see lying. You see coveting. You see stealing. And here, love your neighbors yourself. That wasn't one of the big ten, but that was just all-encompassing. So what Jesus is saying is that the way we love and live out our faith shows our love for God. That's the commandments. That's why he said the second is likened to the first one. It's the way we love and the way we live it out. And the guy goes, I've done that. <laughs> and we laugh because we know that's impossible, it's right? Prideful. <laughs> it is prideful. But I really believe in his heart Listen, I don't want to beat up on this guy too much because I think he really came authentically searching. I really think he came believing he was doing the right things. I think he was probably a synagogue ruler. But what he was lacking was money had a hold of him. And if you go back to Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus lays out to the Pharisees. Don't do this to be seen. Don't pray to be seen. Don't give to be seen. Don't fast to be seen. And then he goes into the section on money and says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things he'll take care of. I think what he was doing back there is saying that greed was a big driving force for the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And I think what comes out in this guy's life is money had a hold on him that he couldn't let go of because he had great possessions. And here's the thing, when you're wealthy, you have no need for God. You trust in your own resources most of the time. Most of us, if, if we're really, really honest, when, when the coffers are full, we're not praying a whole lot about the directions we should get on a day-to-day -day basis. That's why for most agrarian cultures, they tend to be very dependent on God because he has to provide the rain for them to have the crops. No rain, no crops, so they tend to be dependent. For us, we think we make the money because we go work for some guy that pays us a check every two weeks. And we stop looking at God and we look to ourselves. It's what we do. And this guy fit right into that. He was wealthy. No need for God. Matthew 6.21 says where you're what treasure is. treasure is that's where your heart is right in other words those things that you really treasure you can tell you want to know where a man's heart is you look at his checkbook look at his calendar look at his day timer rich man in luke 12 i know i just want to retire i just want to build up all these barns and if i build up the barns then I can put all my food away and I'll have money and I can just eat, drink, and be merry. And what did God say to him? You fool, tonight 
tonight your life's going to be required. And Jesus was making a point there. Those things are temporary. Those th everything we see that we work for here is temporary. But there are some things more important that are eternal. The rich man in Luke 16 didn't get it either with Lazarus. You know, Lazarus is picking up the crumbs off the floor. You would think the guy would remember Leviticus 19 and Leviticus, Leviticus 23 where he would give him food out of his abundance. Leviticus 19 and Leviticus 23 said that you don't harvest everything. You don't take, you leave the four corners for people that are poor to come by and to get stuff. So how does that apply to us? Well, do you spend every bit of money you have? We, most of us tend to do that. We don't allocate money out for the poor. We don't allocate money. We give God His money and then, then the rest is on us. But God put that principle in the Bible for a reason. That you should always have a little bit of money set aside to take care of people. To help people in need. I don't think this rich guy did that. I think he might have been a little bit like the rich man in Lazarus. And for one thing, the wealthies tend to be tied to the world. There's too much to lose, too much to risk. Everything has to be on their terms. In fact, I've asked some people to go to Israel uh, with me, and one of their comments was, well, I, you know, I don't know. It's kind of dangerous over there, and I've got too much to lose. Like, I don't have too much to lose? I've got eight <laughs> kids. I've got eight people Five still at home depending upon me to put food in their mouth. Like it's any less for you to go than it is for me. But see, that develops in our mindset. Oh, I've got these assets and what's going to happen? Who's going to manage them? Who's going to be able to take care of these projects? And so we tend to look at things on our terms. And wealthy people tend to be selfish too. And by the way, when I say wealthy, I think everybody in this room qualifies according to 97% of the world income-wise. We tend to be consumers, not conduits. Listen to what James says real quick. James chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you, re you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. What is he saying? He's saying this stuff isn't going to last. It's not going to last. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You see, when, when you see somebody who's hurting, you take care of them. You help them. That's, that's just something that we, we do as believers. Something we do as his kids. But this guy didn't recognize his own need for a Savior because you know what? Instead of saying, like, like when I'm reading this, I'm convicted in my own heart. All these verses I'm reading, I'm convicted about the things I don't do. He said... I've done all these. I've done all these. I'm not that bad. That's how it comes out for me and you. I'm not that bad. I'm not like this guy over here. 
I'm not that bad. The conviction of saving faith is recognizing that we have a need for a Savior, guys. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect or complete, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor. I had a guy this morning that said, so I, I, that's how I get to heaven? I sell everything and I go away from my family? I said, that's not what he's saying at all. He said it to this guy. You know why? Because he knew the idol in this guy's heart. And he went to the idol. And you know how I know it was an idol? Because of the guy's response. He says, sell it, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He didn't follow, did he? He didn't follow. He went away. And it, and it was an object lesson to his disciples that, that there are people who will say they want to follow Jesus. What must I do? What, I just want to do what I need to do. And yet, the truth is, they really don't want Jesus to be the Lord of their life. What's Matthew's purpose in writing? To reveal the king, right? This is not a democratic king. This is not a king that we go, okay, Lord, you, you have permission to do this. He's a king who does what he wants. And as his servants and as his creation, we respond to him as a king. He's a dictator. It's not a parliament. It's not elected like Congress or a president. He's a king. And we see the confirmation of saving faith when he says to follow me and he goes away and he doesn't. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, this comes from a, there was a saying going around at that time, a colloquial saying that it's easier for an elephant to go through the eye of a needle. That was a, a saying they had over in, in Asia during that time. But Jesus said it's easier for a camel. Why? Because you didn't have a lot of elephants in the Middle East. But it's the same saying. People have tried to make this different. Like there's a gate, like there's some kind of gate that was called the needle gate. Yeah, and that's what they were saying. I don't think that's true. And the reason is because if you look at the way they built their city walls and their gates, there wasn't just one gate. So why would you try to make your camel go down through a little needle gate when there's another gate 50 yards down the road? Because to make him go down, you'd have to take off his stuff and everything. You wouldn't do that. That makes no sense at all. Jesus was talking about the eye of a needle. He was using that colloquial saying. And it was really humorous, actually. It's like it's easier for this to happen than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. And disciples go, well, this is impossible then. And he goes, you're right. It is impossible. There's nobody in here can do it. There's nobody in the world that can do it. Only God can do it. And that's the whole point. And he's saying that, that we have to recognize our need, first of all, for a Savior. But second, we also have to repent. 
There's that nasty word again, repentance. We don't like it. People have tried to say that that's a work. It's not. Repentance is always a part of true salvation. Always. It's always. Um, it's about His Lordship, really. The Lordship of Jesus Christ being evidenced in my lifestyle that I live. Now, Luke 14, 33, Jesus says that you better be willing to leave everything if you really want to follow me. And he says that on more than one occasion in more than one way. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross daily. A couple of places he says in Matthew 10, he talks about it. He talks about suffering. Anyone who is ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of. But it all boils down to the same thing. It all comes down to are we repenting of being our own leader, our own righteousness, our own everything, and allowing Him to have His right place as the Lord of our life? And that's why I crack up when people say, well, if I come to Jesus, do I have to stop this? They don't really understand what it means to come to Him. 1 John 3, 9 says, No one makes a practice of sinning who is born of God. And what that means is, it's not talking, listen, we all continue to sin in different ways. We have struggles this side of heaven. But what it's saying is, you're not going to keep an unrepentant pattern of continual sin if you're His child. He will bring discipline into your life that will remind you that that's not why you exist. And if he doesn't, and you keep sinning, he'll probably take you off the face of the earth. So if those two things don't happen, if you don't end up repenting of your sin, and he doesn't take you off the face of the earth, you've got to wonder, like Paul says, examine yourself, see that you're even in the faith. There's a reason that Paul said that. I want you to listen to what John says in John chapter 1, right on the heels of telling people, John 1 verse 12, they can be children of God. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So how do people become believers? By the will of God. It's not our will. I just decided to start following Jesus. No, that's not how it happened. Nobody decides to follow Jesus on their own. The Holy Spirit woos you. You're, you're dead on the ocean floor. He breathes life into you and brings you up, throws your preserver, then you respond. That's what He does. 2 Timothy 2. Listen to this. 2 Timothy 2.24 And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently, enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Who grants repentance? God does. That's why it's not a work. It's not something you can manufacture. It's a part of salvation. It's not of blood. I think of Levi sitting at a tax booth. Jesus says, come follow me. His whole life changed. He went from being a greedy man to being a guy who... <coughs> who just followed Jesus. He left it all, it says in Luke. He left it all. 
What about Zacchaeus? Greedy, greedy Zacchaeus climbed up in that sycamore tree looking for the same thing the rich young ruler did when he found it. You know what he did? He went and paid back four times what he had taken from people. Fulfilling the law. Living out the law. What about Paul? Paul, a murderer on the road to Damascus, went from being a persecutor of Christians to being persecuted. He had a heart change. That's a confirmation of saving faith, guys. When people see a repentant life, that's confirmation. It's not just telling somebody, well, you know what, Brad, you prayed this prayer with me, so I know you're a believer now just because you prayed it with me. No. You know where true assurance of salvation comes from? It comes from knowing that God's done a work in your heart. You don't have the same desires that you used to have doesn't mean you're not tempted but you know what I was a gambler I was an adulterer I was a murderer I was all these things and God took those desires away so now I can walk through a casino and I see the same things going on that went on 20 years ago and I still would love to get those dice and go to the table and put some money down but I'm able to say nope because that's not who I am anymore I'm not that person anymore because that does not Give me an effective witness to people for Jesus Christ. So I don't do that. You cannot manufacture this on your own. So when the rich young ruler comes and says, hey, uh, what must I do? Jesus hit him with the law. Because the law reveals sin to us. Paul says, I wouldn't know what the law, uh, what sin was if it were not for the law. So Jesus hits him with the law. And instead of going, wow, boy, I can't do anything. He goes, I've done all that. And Jesus goes, okay, since you think you've done it all, why don't you take care of that idol in your heart and go sell everything? If you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, why wouldn't you be willing to sell what you have and give to the poor? That's right. Give to the ones. But that's what I'm saying. The fact that he couldn't do it meant yeah, that it was an idol. He was a sinner in need of salvation. Yeah. But he never recognized that need, and it says he went away sad. Yes, he died. He went away sad. Well, listen to what James says in chapter James chapter 2. James is a great book for dealing with this. A lot of people don't like James. They don't. They don't like James. They just wish they'd take it out of the Bible, man, because it's hard hitting. Listen to this. This is a long section, but stick with me. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active all along with its works and faith was completed by 
his works. And the scriptures was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So, I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you? Don't tell me you love him if you don't live for him. Don't tell me you love him if you don't live for him. It's like my daughter telling me she loves me and then directly disobeying me right after she told me she loved me. That carries little weight with me. Because if you love me, it means you'll trust me. See, the love factor is tied in with trust. And that's where that childlike faith, that little baby trusts the parent. The baby just depends on the parent. And so love is tied in with trust. If we love, we will trust. Because we know God loves us. And so Peter, mulling all this over like he always does, goes, well, Lord, we've left everything. And Jesus says, Peter, you're going to rule with me in the life to come. I heard John MacArthur uh, use this illustration. It was good, I thought. He said, you know what life is? Life is responding to the environment around you. And when we think of eternal life, a lot of times we think about quantity, not quality. We think about the number of infinity just living forever and ever. But think about it. It I mean, it's a good definition because dead people don't respond to the things around them. Right? So we will respond to God around us forever and ever and ever as his kids. We will be in a relationship with God that starts here on earth. So when he says, Peter, you're going to inherit eternal life, that's speaking as much about the quality as it is just the quantity. Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. See, the rich young ruler did not grasp that. He was holding on to something that was all going to go away. And if you don't believe it, go just sometime go to a graveyard and read the names. See what, you know, what people write on stones and stuff, on the gravestones. Funerals are a great reminder to us that, that we're all going to go. I, I want to close with this illustration. There's a guy who's supported me for the last 15, 20 years. Every year, he writes a check in December. Every year, like clockwork. I mean, he's in his 90s, right? And every year, I know December, he sends a card and he sends a check. Well, this year, his check came before I went to Israel. came in November. And I go, wow, that's kind of wild. Because, you know, I know, you know, he, he every year he sent me that Christmas card and it came and this year it came with a thanksgiving card and that was not like him and i i got it and my dad called me yesterday and said yeah mr tom passed away december 7th 
And he knew. He knew. And I said, was he sick? And he goes, well, not really. He's just, he was 90 years old, you know. But he knew. And one of the last things he did was he sent that check, not just to us, but to other missionaries that he supported. And I thought, how cool is that? What a faithful guy. He, and he would always write, just want you to know I'm praying for you. I believe he received a crown. Joseph received a crown. Daniel received a crown. Job received a crown. All those guys went through terrible suffering, things that they had to give up. It's not what you give up. It's what you gained. The rich young ruler did not understand what saving faith was because had he really understood, I don't believe he would have held on to his money. I believe he would have thrown it all away to get what he could not lose. Father, I just thank you for the reminder that you love us and that you offer this life giving message to us at no cost. It's not about being wealthy. It's not about having stature. It's not about having the right connections. It is offered to everyone and and you want us to come to you. Not everybody will. But it's not just about coming to you. It's also allowing you to have your rightful place in our heart. And I pray for each man in here that right now, no matter what's going on in the past in our lives, that if right now there's a moment where we need to acknowledge to you, we've not depended on you, not really recognized our need for you, that we would do that right now. And for those of us, Lord, who have made that very clear and we understand that we have a need, but we've allowed the enemy to somehow distract us from following you, I pray that, Lord, you would uh, remind us again through your spirit of your love and your forgiveness that was demonstrated on that cross, that we would not wallow in our guilt, but, Lord, we would... uh, turn anew and allow you to be the Lord of our life the way you want to be. That money, that family, that job, that dreams and desires, nothing would come between our love for you, Lord. All those things would be secondary to our love for you. And I pray that for each and every guy here today. We praise you and we love you, God. Amen.